morning crypto. Good morning, Warriors. Hello and welcome back to another episode of your favorite crypto news channel, Good Morning Crypto, where we bring you the most relevant and impactful crypto-related topics from a top crypto research team in the world. I'm your host, Abs, joined by several members of our 3T family this morning. We got the Italian stallion, Mr. Johnny Crypto. Gonzo, also known as Super G, is joining us. And today we have a very special guest, a renowned crypto educator and developer in the space, known for his unique insight in blockchain development and payment evolution. Quincy Jones is in the building, ladies and gentlemen. So I am very excited for today's show. Today on Good Morning Crypto, we will be discussing how the Bank of England adopted Ripple's Overledger protocol for payment settlement over the weekend, marking a massive catalyst for crypto integration in the global finance. As XDC is making waves in Singapore this morning, bringing real-time assets onto their blockchain. Stablecoins are becoming more important by the day as a new application allows USDC to be deposited in any U.S. bank in the country. As David Schwartz responded to the critics of the Ripple ruling, telling his followers, it's not what it seems. And with the digital revolution of a lifetime already upon us, we break down the details, showing our community how X-Coins are changing finance forever. Our show is available on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. And for those of you listening via podcast, our show is live on YouTube Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern at the 3T Warrior Academy channel. So Johnny Crypto, today's a very special day, not only because we got Quincy, we're going to be talking about some major developments happening in England today. But first of all, how you feeling, my friend? Thank you for being here. Absolutely doing great. Good morning to all the Warrior Maniacs out there. We love and appreciate you guys for showing up every single beautiful day and it's great to see gonzo and quincy back in the house i can't wait to hop into it let's go baby it's always a learning experience when we have quincy on the show guys and gonzo i'm happy to have you here as well people like to joke around and call you the ethereum maximalist so i guess we're gonna call quincy the xdc maximalist this morning i'm only kidding quincy but how you feeling gonzo and thank you for being here i'm feeling good man i i had a, a dentist appointment yesterday so i had some oral surgery so i have some stitches in my mouth in case I, I sound a little funny. So I'm actually glad that Quincy's here because I could literally listen to Quincy talk all day. And so I'm just going to sit back and just absorb the knowledge, but it's going to be a great show. Guys, I am very excited for this special guest. And Quincy, our live chat's been asking for you for several weeks. So coincidentally enough, we got you coming on the show. First of all, how are you feeling? And thank you for making time for us. I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, Gonzo, I think it's funny that you uh, spoke about like having a uh, surgery on your mouth. I actually just got my wisdom teeth removed a couple of days ago. So I'm sort of in the same position, kind of funny. But um, no, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, a lot of stuff's been going on. Uh, a lot of stuff coming up, actually. going to be traveling quite a bit. Um, but no, been doing pretty well, actually. That's awesome. And we've got some great content prepared for today, Quincy. We already got 222 live listeners here. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And we're going to get this thing started by checking out our Good Morning Crypto Twitter account. And guys, we broke 5,000 followers yesterday. So I want to say thank you to every single person who follows the Twitter. I'm on here all day, really seriously, all day I'm giving updates. So it really means a lot to me that 5,000 people are following. When you check out the Bitcoin Fear and Greed Index, we are sitting in neutral this morning at a 53 Johnny Crypto, but check out the daily bubbles as XDC is up 12%, Bone Token 7%, and KAS up about 9% on the day. When we look at our Merlin market update this morning, we are sitting at $1.17 trillion in total market cap. Bitcoin is 48% dominance. Ethereum is about 19%. We've got Bitcoin sitting at 29200 Ethereum is 1839 and XRP sitting down there at 69 cents. And Quincy, I'd love to get started with just a little bit of Q&A this morning because 
There's a lot of news around Ripple that we're going to get into, but this was some exciting news I found from XDC this morning. XDC's network has partnered with Infocom Media Development Authority in Singapore by completing their integration with Trade Trust Digital Utility. Now, why is this so exciting? It's because the XDC network completed an important milestone as part of its efforts to digitalize global trade. This integration with Singapore's Infocom enables trusted interoperability of electric trade documents across various digital platforms. And that's really where I'd like to stop, Quincy, because we're watching finance change right before our eyes. We've got stablecoin bills being passed in the United States, but these type of developments are what's going to create real integration for crypto. So what's on the forefront of your mind? Is this something that's, I guess, prevalent for XDC or what other, I guess, announcements do you have to make? Yeah, so um, the trade trust, the trade trust and being able to tokenize documents. I remember when that was just like a very new thing. I remember when that was just uh, sort of in the talks for a little bit. So it's really cool seeing that mature and come to fruition. Um, one of the biggest things that that's going to set the stage for is a lot of people focus on finance. A lot of people focus on tokens and assets, but it actually shows that you can use these technology stacks to be able to do a whole host of different things. Uh, a token doesn't necessarily need to be an asset. It can be a representation of a document. It can be a representation of ownership over a document or an ID. And with that comes with all the means of being able to verify documents, verify IDs, being able to automate certain mechanisms within those. Like People like to use the idea of a ticket, but you can use that same very functionality of a ticket to be able to verify someone's uh, identity or be, be able to verify some, some documents uh, uh, or, or some documents origin or something like that. And one of the biggest things that I see is a huge focus, at least with XDC, especially with a lot of these trade finance institutions is they're not solely focused on just being able to move assets, although that's a big point, um, but also being able to verify users, being able to verify business partners and being able to have a means of being able to authenticate some level of documentation across the network or across the, uh, across the internet. And this is important because in order to be able to engage in trade finance, you need to be able to be able to verify who you're engaging with trade finance. I just can't engage with anybody and allow that to be sort of compliant in any regard. I need to know who I'm engaging with and, able, and being able to do that, especially being able to uh, create smart contracts, be able to verify documents, being able to verify identities, uh, is a lot, allows for a lot more of the additional functionality that you're traditionally familiar with. Thank you, Quincy. And another thing I'd like to talk about just before we get into some hard evidence for today is the fact that once any of these payment mechanisms makes the upgrade into digital assets, everybody who's operating in the old system has a massive disadvantage. So what I'd like to ask you is, as we're seeing the integration in Singapore, we're seeing it in Japan, even a little bit in Hong Kong, does that put the fire underneath, I guess, US companies to start integrating crypto into their payment system? Because if not, they're just going to use something better. Yeah, so I think what's going to end up happening, and this kind of goes into like, what does adoption look like? Um, this sort of ends up being this idea of is there influence? Is there competition? What's going to create? Um, what's going to create adoption? And really, what it looks like is as you start seeing bigger trade partners use this, the partners that they traditionally start engaging with will start onboarding themselves onto these networks to start engaging with their traditional trade partners in a more efficient manner. So what's going to end up happening is you'll see one or two big trade partners pop up then those partners that they engage with them will also utilize these networks to be able to engage with them even more efficiently. And then it sort of like spreads out like a web as more and more people start engaging on these networks and the bigger they are, the more of their partners are gonna also engage on those networks to just have an easier means to uh, be able to trade with them. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing in a sort of a slow burn. Like usually people think of, oh, well, if Singapore's doing this, will the US do this? Well, potentially, depending on how much trade are they doing with Singapore and how much influence is that going to have over uh, you know, domestic uh, businesses being able to adopt these technologies. Um, if they're doing some level of exchange with them and they're having some level of partnership, some level 
uh, relationship, the odds of them moving over to these technologies end up being high because the people that they're engaging with are utilizing these technologies in order to conduct their business. So I think you're going to see influence. Um, I think you're going to see big big businesses influence other businesses to utilize the technologies that they use to allow for more efficient business, uh, for more business, uh, more efficient trade finance um, activity. Quincy, it's not Conspiracy Friday, but before we get into our articles, there's one last question I have for you. WorldCoin has been taken center stage when it comes to the narrative around crypto, and we saw integration in poorer countries. But let me ask you pretty point blank. Do you ever think it's a good idea to incorporate biometrics into finance? Um, I think that's already the case. When you start looking like how many people have Apple Pay and they use their facial scan to be able to interact with Apple Pay, I think it's fundamentally no different. I think people get a little like squirmish with the notion of decentralization and where does that data go and who's hosting it and who, who does that belong to? And I'd be a little bit squirmish too. But um, I think biometrics is already part of our daily life. We just utilize it in different ways, whether it's fingerprint scanning, whether it's facial recognition. Um, I think these are more tied to the devices that we use as opposed to the chain that we use. But um, I think we use this every day. So. Thank you, Quincy. Sorry, I got stuck on the mute button there, guys. But we got 333 live listeners here. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And now we are going to get into the articles that we have prepared for today. And this is one I'm very excited to hear Quincy's take on because I'm not sure you've given your take on the Ripple ruling yet. So I'm going to read a brief excerpt here from Ripple and kick it right back to you. On July 13th, the court unequivocally ruled that XRP in and of itself is not a security. XRP, along with Bitcoin, are now the only two digital assets in the United States with that clarity, although the court's decision sets key precedent that other market participants can rely on. Not only has the court spoken, but the crypto market has spoken shortly after as well. Quickly after the Ripple decision, many exchanges in the United States began to relist XRP, which included Coinbase, Kraken, Bitstamp, and several other major exchanges. A couple key takeaways from this ruling is that XRP is not a security in and of itself. Ripple sales on XRP on exchanges do not constitute as securities, and Ripple sales of XRP by executives are also not securities. A wide range of other Ripple, uh, Ripple XRP distributions to developers, to charities, and also employees were not considered securities. Certain Ripple sales that pursuant on written contracts were investment contracts and therefore did qualify as securities. And people are acting, acting as if this, this is a confusing ruling here, but it's really not, Quincy. What they decided is that computer code in and of itself is not a security. That's XRP. But there are certain situations where you can offer it under the qualifications of a security. So broadly, I'd love to hear what this ruling means to you and how it affects the XDC narrative that's going on today. Yeah, I think I think what ends up happening is, especially with the confusion, um, just because the computer code, as it will, is not a security doesn't mean that any sort of licensing or any sort of deals you do with that code may potentially be a security. It's no different if you took some sort of commodity and you engage with some sort of contract around that commodity. Commodity itself isn't a security, but the contract that you're engaging with is a security among upon what level of agreement you have with them. And I think that's essentially what it is. I think all the different technologies are operating in that, in, in that degree. Uh, I think what ends up happening in the crypto space is there's sort of this all or nothing in attitude, either everything's a security and we have to fight against it or none of it's a security. And no matter what we do, nothing's a security. And I think it's way more nuanced than that. I think there are a lot of technologies that can be classified as a lot of different things, but that doesn't change the fact that businesses operating as businesses and agreements acting as agreements are still going to abide by the traditional securities law, even if they are utilizing technologies that are themselves not securities. 
And I think this is just something that's going to start rolling, uh, that's going to start moving forward the space with other technologies being classified as different things. Like, I don't even think we've even seen the, like, scratching, the, we've barely scratched the surface in terms of the definition of these different assets. Yeah, maybe they're not a security, but does that make them a commodity? Does that make them a uh, currency? Does that make them some sort of new techno asset or whatever? Um, I think with, like, I think there's 26,000 cryptocurrencies currently. I think with that many cryptocurrencies, it's hard to just, you know, cast them into wide baskets. But for the most part, like, traditional Traditional investment contracts are traditional investment contracts, regardless of the uh, regardless of the asset that you're exchanging in that contract. Like I said, if you did the same thing with the commodity, the contract is a security, but the commodity you're exchanging is not. When we talk about decentralization, one of the key narratives that comes up is governance versus ownership. And so I want to ask you this question. Is it more important for who creates the rules of the blockchain or is overall ownership more important when it comes to the decentralization narrative? Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit, uh, especially on yeah. the decentralization narrative? So David Schwartz made the case that Ripple, although they own 55 billion of the X of the escrow and they hold the majority of the float when it comes to XRP, they cannot in and of themselves change the rules of the blockchain. And for that reason, they consider it to be decentralized. So I just wanted to get your take. Is it more important for who owns the majority of the tokens or who sets the rules and regulations on these separate ledgers? So this actually it all depends on the type of technology you're talking about. If you're talking about proof of work, you're talking about 51% of the hashing rate. If you're talking about proof of stake, you're talking about holding a majority of the tokens. XRP doesn't abide by any of those rules. It's it doesn't it's pre-mined. It doesn't have uh it does you don't stake any tokens and you don't essentially mine any tokens. So the decentralization comes from the fact that anybody can operate that anyone can operate a node on the network and participate with any other node on the network. Um now in terms of the other technologies that operate by these different rules, to some degree of how they operate will determine to what level of centralization or decentralization there are. But at least from my perspective, I look at decentralization as a tool rather than an ideology. Utilize decentralization to be able to offset costs and to be able to offset uh, or be able to leverage a wider network that you don't have to necessarily manage. Now, obviously, this sort of ranges to uh, different levels of uh, decentralization, and that's sort of on the people that use the network to decide uh, what networks are appropriate and what levels of decentralization are adequate for them. Um, but for the most part, uh, especially in terms of uh, XRP, the means of being able to engage with different nodes without actually having to the means of being able to engage with different nodes that anybody can simply by being able to spin up a node and interact with the network it makes it decentralized as well as any other network. Um, I think we get too hung up on the notion of what decentralized looks like. I think people don't actually care about decentralized sometimes. I think there's sort of like an ideology around it. But you got to remember, it's a tool. And these tools are utilized in certain ways to allow for businesses to be able to conduct themselves in specific ways. Johnny Crypto, I'd love to kick it over to you for a brief question here. But we got 367 live listeners here. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And Quincy, in case you didn't know, Johnny Crypto's at his lake house right there. That's his beautiful background. But Johnny, floor is yours. Actually, this is Ab's rear deck, but we just like to paint a better picture. Uh, no, I think to answer your question, it is really important when you think of this whole question of you know decentralization ownership versus uh, governance. To me, you know, owning something, if you have no control over it, really is not that important. Having control over something seems to be more important app so i would think the governance to answer your question of something is more important than the actual ownership and uh i i think we'll, we'll we'll have to see how the whole thing plays out but to me that's where if you were to ask me what matters uh again it doesn't matter if you're 90 percent of it if you have no say in something so and i think quincy did a good job of breaking out exactly how and that's what's unique and different Every single situation dictates a different type of, of who has governance or control over something. So it's more important to understand that 
then that'll help you understand whether something is decentralized or not. And Quincy, speaking of governance and control, here's a massive question I think everybody in the community is asking right now. One of the uh, followers on Twitter commented this. After reading Ripple's market report, they stated that this specific statistic was misleading. All the XRP listed is owned by Ripple, and thus the total and the sum should be two numbers. The total XRP owned by Ripple should be $48 billion. But as you can see right here, they said the total XRP held by Ripple is $5 billion, while the escrow is just below $42 billion. Now, why is this important, Quincy? Because underneath, David Schwartz took the time to respond, and he said something many of our listeners will find interesting. He said this would be correct if you didn't think the XRPL escrow feature is actually an escrow. Funds in an escrow are not held by the party put that put them into the escrow. So that's a little bit confusing. What he's saying here, and he's hinting at this, is that Ripple doesn't control the escrow, and therefore they do not control those 42 billion XRP. I know I'm just dropping this on you right now, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you agree with David Schwartz? Do you think that there could be pre-allocated contracts or some other narrative going on here? Or do you just think Ripple owns this escrow and they're being pretty creative? Um, well, it's in the term escrow. Uh, escrow is just enforced by code. So the notion is if they had control, the, me the, the notion would be that they could just have access to those funds at any time. That's not the case. Um, that's so much not the case that whenever you're setting an escrow on XRP, you need to be careful. If I set an escrow for 99 years in the future, you can't touch that for 99 years into the future. That's, it's literally in the name, escrow. Um, but these are just programmatically enforced. Uh, these are programmatically enforced concepts. So like the notion of an escrow, like if you were buying a house and some of your funds for the house were an escrow, you wouldn't just say, oh, I have access to those funds. No, you don't. It's in an escrow. You don't have access to those funds. They're, they're, it's specifically placed there in a specific way to allow for the means of really negotiation and whatever. But by, by the definition, it's not accessible. I think people get really uh, squirmish, and I see this a lot with a lot of pre-mined tokens. People get really squirmish with the allocation of different tokens because of the, the implied idea that they're going to dump. Um, and I mean, if you have that idea about any of these different projects, you might as well presume the project isn't legitimate. There are plenty of projects that are very legitimate that don't necessarily want to dump their tokens and don't necessarily put themselves in a position to dump their tokens, hence the escrow, um, to essentially allow for a further uh, level of trust with their with their with their audience, with holders, whatever it may be. But the biggest thing is, is at least to answer your question, um, the escrow is just a feature on the XRP ledger that can allow you to uh, enforce time-locked, essentially time-locked contracts for your XRP that can be released at a later time. So that 5 billion XRP that they have, that's XRP that's absolute liquid right now. They have in possession, they can do whatever they want with. That escrow is not. That escrow can only be re can only be released on a timely basis based on how much they set it. Just like any other escrow on any other network or in any other process, um, I think I think what ends up happening is there's a bit of hysteria on what's going to be done with what sort of funds and how's that going to impact the investors and all of that. But the biggest thing is if you trust the project. Well, for one, I think you should get very familiar with the certain features on the project rather than trust it outright. But if you trust the project. The main thing that you should be focused on is, are the features working? And the real question is, is that escrow feature a real feature? Or are they saying that? Because like I said, if you think it's not a real feature, then you might as well say they're not a legitimate project because they're lying. I don't believe they're lying. I've read the documentation. 
but the biggest thing is I think there's a lot of hysteria around um, just pre-mine tokens and the allocation and what it means for the market if they were to sell. I think it's a lot of anxiety uh, just on the nature of how these, uh, just on the nature of how some of these tokens have been allocated. I think Ripple has done a really good job in terms of being able to have these have this escrow feature and be able to build that level of trust as well as you know be able to allocate funds appropriately over time. And I think they have a thing where they like release like a billion a month and maybe they sell it onto the market depending on different conditions. Um, but that's the thing. It, it's they have a process for being able to manage these things. It's in the name escrow. So I, I think what ends up happening with all of this is just a lot of people are really anxious around what it means for a large a large portion of any given asset to be in the custody of, even though it's not quite um, of a given party because of the implications of the dumping on the market. Johnny, there's a lot of places I can take this, but I just want to get one preface in before I kick it over to you. Quincy said a couple of things there. Ripple's been fully transparent when it comes to these disclosures. Even the market reports that we're going to go through today, they don't have to do that. They're doing that willingly. So I don't understand why they would uh, why they would lie about the narrative of the escrow. The second thing that really caught my attention is you said they release one billion XRP into the open market every month, or not into the open market, privately to banks. So what happens is a billion XRP are released from the escrow. They take that billion and they try to offer it to banks of that billion, whatever's not sold in this month, it was 800 billion or sorry, 800 million of 1 billion is put back into the escrow to be released in the last month. So as you can see, Quincy, they are not dumping on the market. They do not control the escrow. But Johnny, I know you had some thoughts. Floor is yours. Yeah. So obviously that's everyone's biggest concern, right? Is that that they can dump the escrow. Quincy, what is it that makes it? You know, code could always be rewritten and changed over and going over and over again. And I know Watts Bay, they had a maximum coin supply and then they rewrote their code. So what is it that makes it that the escrow is guaranteed where it can't be changed? How do you give confidence to people that once it's in writing, it can't be rewritten when when code can always be overwritten? So I'm curious, how how do they do that? Maybe you can explain. So code can always be overwritten, but this is what the consensus protocols are for. This is the entire premise of blockchain in the first place is the notion that things can't be changed unless consensus is made among a broader party or a broad set of parties. So that's essentially the entire role of the consensus mechanism is to allow for, look, yeah, the code can be changed, but only if everyone agrees it to be changed and agrees it to be changed in this way. And obviously, if you end up with sort of a mixed bag in that, in terms of trying to change things, you end up with forks, you end up with these little off chains or whatever. And that really just comes down to what level of participation is being had. You see this with Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin has like a zillion forks off of it because people want to do essentially change the code. And the original Bitcoin code isn't changed, but the fork essentially is a new set of participants that want to abide by this new set of rules. So essentially, if you were afraid of there any, being any change, odds are it would just be a fork forked off of the XRP chain and it wouldn't essentially affect the main chain and in order to affect the main chain a good majority of the participants on the main chain would have to come to consensus to be able to do that and that's essentially the exactly. role of the consensus mechanism bingo and that's exactly why apps i was saying earlier that i think who controls the governance is more important for what quincy just said because it comes down to a consensus who gets to vote now quincy do you know in those consensus is it typically just 51 percent majority or is it different across all the different blockchains for consensus of being able to change the code? Um, it's different. So everyone says 51% because that was originally Bitcoin's uh, consensus. Uh, with SEC, right. especially with SEC 2.0, ours is 75%. I believe XRP might be 60, 65%. Um, different networks have a different level of, have a different 
criteria for the consensus needed to be able to make modifications. Um, but usually most of the networks are above 51%. 51% is a very base minimum. Obviously that's just the basic majority. A lot of them I think are pushing around 60%. Like I said, FCC is focused on around 70, 75%. But the biggest thing is is they're all slightly different depending on depending on, uh, depending on on the level of engagement you have. Thank you guys. And we got 476 live listeners here. Show us some love and smash that like button. Quincy, this files in perfectly to what you just said. And Gonzo, I just saw your live chat. So the floor is yours after this. Brad Garlinghouse tweeted, we began these reports to voluntarily provide updates given our XRP holding. Sadly, they were used against us in the SEC lawsuit. However, we remain steadfast in our commitment to transparency. And I suspect they're going to look a bit different moving forward. So I think that plays into what you said, Quincy. Why would they lie about the escrow? All of this information is voluntary. And somebody continues to ask, what is the max supply of XRP? That would be $100 billion with 48 locked into the escrow. And every single day, there is a tiny, tiny amount of XRP that's burned during transactions. So that really trickles down over time. But Gonzo, I know you had a question. So floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, there's been some debate in the chat about what XDC's max supply is. So maybe Quincy can talk about the max supply and then uh, give some clarity to the chat. Yeah, so technically there is no max supply. It's slightly inflationary. I think the inflation rate is around 50 basis points to 70 basis points, a little under 1%. And it actually gets, it actually gets lower over time because it's fixed in terms of the amount of uh, XDC created each block. I think it's five XDC created each block. But one thing that I see online, and it kind of annoys the crap out of me, is a lot of people genuinely don't understand the purpose of different aspects of this inflation. You pay for the network in inflation. It's like I said, 50 basis points, 70 basis points, a little under 1%, to essentially allow the network operators to have a means or an incentive to even run the nodes in the first place. If I'm running a node on the network, why am I running a node on the network? These are incentives. If I have no means of being able to make any sort of profit for running a node, why would I even support the network? Well, that slight little bit of inflation is essentially to pay for the node operators to essentially incentivize them to run the network. Now, in doing so, you get a slight inflation rate, but the idea is that you get more economic activity and more economic growth on the network from them supporting the network than you would from the overall inflation. 50 to, like I said, you would, you're basically saying like in order for there to be a overall realized inflation, the overarching amount of economic growth would have to be less than the inflation rate of like 50 to 70 basis points. Right now in the past like 24 hours, the FCC network has gone up like what, 10, 15%, whatever. Uh, that already outpaced the inflation rate already like 100 to 1. The biggest point about that is, and I think people focus on this because they don't genuinely understand inflation, even in a traditional economy. People go, oh, inflation is bad. Well, in a traditional economy, the idea of essentially printing money is, hey, look, let's say you're a central bank and we wanted to create more economic activity for a specific city to allow there to be more people being able to come into the city. So we print a little bit of money, we build a bridge. Now the idea is if we printed a million dollars to build that bridge, we want to get more economic activity out of that bridge uh, to essentially make it worth it. Now you can actually get into like really big, like modern monetary theory on how helpful this is. But the idea is that the inflation is meant to pay for overall economic growth. And it does the same thing with these networks. The inflation rate's incredibly low, incredibly small, but I see people just go inflation bad, don't really want to critically engage with economic concepts. So they essentially just spaz out and go, oh no, this is terrible. Uh, even something as simple as, uh, it sounds silly to say this, um, but even something as simple as like Dogecoin having like a 2% inflation rate, 
the premise is if you're able to essentially grow the network faster than the overall inflation and have an anticipated means of being able to anticipate whatever inflation there is, there isn't necessarily a problem. I think where people get this notion of inflation being bad is just rampant money printing by the Federal Reserve and essentially using that money to essentially like line their bank accounts rather than actually being able to create uh, further economic growth for the economy. But when it comes to these networks, the inflation rate is cooked into the freaking um, it's cooked into the network. It's five XTC per block. It ends up going it ends up being lower and lower each year because it's fixed, but the uh, total supply gets larger. So what ends up happening is it'll go from 70 basis points to 65 basis points to 50 basis points just because it's continuously only being five uh, XTC per block. But the entire premise of that is to incentivize node operators to run the nodes in the first place. Otherwise, what's the point? Thank you, Quincy. And this is something I'm really excited to get your opinion on today. We got 500 live listeners already here. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And look at this latest update from Ripple because they're talking about the tokenization of real world assets. And I know this is something Quincy has a lot of knowledge on. So what does a tokenized future look like? So first, let's define what tokenization actually is. Tokenization is the representation of real world value on a blockchain with tokens. And so, you know, if we think about financial instruments, I see a future where equities and bonds and other instruments are represented as tokens on a blockchain. I also see more illiquid assets such as real estate uh, being represented on blockchains through tokens also. Um, so what does the future hold? What does all this mean for us individuals? It allows us all to own fractions of assets we otherwise could not afford. You know, I can't afford to fund a film, but maybe I can own a token that partially funds a movie. I could buy a token that represents a rainforest because I want to preserve it for ecological reasons. So look, I see a future where we all own value that we otherwise couldn't own. We own fractions of assets we otherwise couldn't own. And yeah, that's so Quincy, what's really exciting is they're putting ownership back in the hands of the small investors here. He talked about decentralizing assets, but let's focus on one thing in particular. When banks begin to tokenize assets, it's going to make them historical amounts of money. So they have massive incentive to do so. The question that I have for you is what blockchains as a developer, as somebody who works in this space every day, do you believe are best for tokenization? We often talk about XRP, XLM, XDC. Are we correct in understanding that those tokens are really built for tokenization of assets? So I would say there's a few things in that. Technically, I would say all networks are built for tokenization, but there's an element of what activity are you trying to facilitate on what network? Um, this is one of the biggest things that I think get really confusing and people think, oh my God, everyone's going to be jumping from network to network to network. I think there's going to be a specific amount of activity that, in, that is engaged with on specific networks. And let's say with XDC, it's automated trade finance and documentation. Let's say on XRP, it's cross-border remittance. Let's say on Ethereum, it's like retail-based, um, you know, asset tokenization, whatever. Uh, there's going to be a specific amount of activity that, that is going to be uh, garnered on specific networks that's going to drive people to those networks. Um, now, when it comes to tokenization, I think it was really interesting to talk about like fractionalized ownership. But I think one of the real benefits of tokenization is when dealing with businesses, especially when you say like businesses and banks make a lot of money. When dealing with businesses and banks, a lot of their business is entirely is entirely derived around relationships. So if you're a bank, a broker, a finance institution, some other business or whatever, um, your ability to conduct trade is only is limited by the amount of partners that you can act actively engage with almost tangibly you almost need to 
you know, have their phone number, be able to call them up, be able to email them, be able to interact with them directly. Well, being able to operate on these decentralized networks and being able to tokenize different assets on these networks, you can be able to interact with a, a, a whole assortment of different people that you otherwise wouldn't need a direct relationship with. Um, one comparison I always make is like social media. Uh, before social media, if you wanted to go out and meet people, you had to go out and meet people. You had to go to clubs, you had to go to bars, you had to go wherever. Well, now on social media, I essentially have a wider view, of, uh, a wider reach of people that can hear my message or I can interact with way more than I ever could on ever could in person. It's sort of the same thing there, but on steroids when it comes to finance institutions. If I'm a bank or a broker, I can now interact with any sort of bank or broker anywhere in the world on this network as opposed to having some sort of direct relationship with them and have an instant means of being able to engage with assets with them as opposed to having some sort of tangible relationship in terms of we're both trying to collaborate these different paper contracts, as you will. So I think one of the biggest one of the biggest things of that is a better, more a better and more defined means of allowing for businesses to interact with each other on a global scale. And then different networks are going to facilitate different um, different types of activity at that scale. So like I said, like you sort of see it really vague at this point. But I think what's going to end up happening is certain big businesses are going to facilitate a specific type of activity on a specific network, and then people will go to those networks to engage with that activity. Like I said, they may go to XDC for trade finance and documentation and, and uh, tokenizing documents and IDs, and that's where you go for tokenizing documents and IDs. You may go to XRP for or stablecoin liquidity. You want to deal with liquidity, you want to deal with stablecoins, you go to XRP, boom. You go to, to retail-based uh, NFTs or whatever on Ethereum, that's where you're going to go to deal with retail-based NFTs. And it'll be like that for every network. And I think that actually ends up creating something really good too because i think these networks will scale a lot better if they're essentially hyper focused they're hyper focused or hyper specialized on a specific type of engagement rather than trying to be these general purpose engagement factories i guess you could say um and it's, it just works well for everybody because what ends up happening is is as these different uh, economies start to form on these different networks and as this activity starts to ramp up um i think you'll start seeing the amount of activity on a given network more analogous to industry activity than you would to just like sort of general activity. So like, let's say, I, I know this is really, really like low resolution, but let's say like VeChain just took up all of like, uh, what's it called? Supply chain uh, activity. So everything around supply chain is on VeChain, boom. Everything supply chain, you go to VeChain for supply chain, boom. Cross border remittances, currencies, XRP. Trade finance, documents, XTC. There's a specific type of engagement, and then that will become its own industry on that network because that engagement is being facilitated. Quincy, a follow-up question I have for you really quickly is we've seen Ethereum be adopted for a lot of these trade finance applications, but obviously it's not the best technology. When do you think we're going to see a fundamental shift into better technologies and not just, I guess, a monopoly on relationships? Um, I think everyone's rushing to Ethereum because that's a fad right now. When everyone says, oh, this is... This is one thing that, and maybe I sound like a hater for this, not just on Ethereum, but just in like a lot of crypto projects in general. Um, I think I think that uh, we all focus on who's doing what and everyone just sort of follows the leader in that regard. But I haven't seen really any real compelling projects that have done anything that really are analogous to traditional, whether it's traditional finance, whether it's new businesses, whether it's new finance, DeFi, whatever. I haven't really seen any compelling projects other than sort of like these contrived finance instruments that are entirely predicated on roping in retail investors to potentially make a profit. Maybe, who knows? I don't know. We'll throw it and see what happens. Maybe. But the biggest thing is I see a lot of this activity that doesn't seem real. Um, and the real activity is very minimal. Like I see like whether it's on Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, a lot the real activity does is, is very, very minimal. Um, so what I see right now is I see a sort of a fad where everyone's sort of doing what everyone else is doing. You saw this with ERC-20 tokens where everyone just launched a random token. You saw this with NFTs where everyone launched a random NFT. You see this with DeFi with DAOs. And you see this with DeFi with DEXs. People just launch random crap. 
And yeah, that's activity, but it's you want to look at sustainable activity. Like if someone said, oh my God, look how fast our economy is growing. We have 10,000 small businesses or 10,000 startups that were launched in the past like week. Well, if all like 10,000 of them will go bankrupt in the next year or two, like how much activity did you really have? And I think that's sort of what we're seeing now. This is not a Ethereum or Bitcoin thing. This is a all crypto thing. Um, so, and when I see really compelling projects, most of those projects are not very public about it. It's kind of funny, but the biggest thing is I think we see a lot of hype and I think it's easy to follow the hype, but it's hard to tell if that hype is going to be sustainable or not. Now, I don't want to just sound like I'm hating on different projects. Maybe they're sustainable, but from the perspective I'm seeing right now, about 95% of projects don't seem very sustainable and they seem like they're trying to capitalize on some short-term hype to be able to get some attention and get people roped into whatever their project may be. Thank you so much, Quincy. And I got to just dispel some rumors and here. This is for every network. I'm not like trying to call out Ethereum or call out, but this is for every network, everyone. Like, So I just, let, let I me know. ask you something that I guess is on the forefront of everyone's mind. You just said it's all relationships. Everything's built upon relationships. Well, Ripple has the best relationships, right? Although they're being suppressed by the narratives from the SEC and from the US government, they're partnered with the World Economic Forum. They work with many of the most powerful governments and organizations on the planet. Does that come into your state of mind and thinking when we talk about adoption? We're even going to discuss the FedNow Payments Council later in the episode, but let's stay on the World Economic Forum partnerships. What do you think about Ripple's integration with organizations like that? And how does that play into, I guess, their development in the future? Um, I guess I can only speculate on Ripple, but what I what I end up seeing sort of personally, and it's sort of in the same position as, uh, sort of in, being in the same position as Ripple, what I end up seeing is, as more businesses start adopting, I said this earlier too, as businesses start adopting uh, these different technologies, big businesses, whether it's Ripple, whether it's Zinfin, whether it's some big bank or whatever, um, as they start having their relationships become more defined, I think those relationships will cause uh, those trade partners to start adopting those technologies to engage with uh, their already established trade partners more efficiently. So with Ripple, and this and this is this is my speculation. I don't know exactly what they're doing, um, but essentially, uh, by them having uh, trade partners in the traditional sense, um, they have a, a easier time to be able to influence and be able to have those traditional or traditional businesses migrate to these new technologies in the efforts to make their business more efficient. If XD, if, if XRP or Ripple essentially is allowing them to facilitate a specific type of service, and it's more efficient than they were traditionally doing. Um, it may be a little bit, little bit of growing pains in terms of being able to migrate from one technology stack to a new technology stack. But the idea is that they get, uh, if they're able to get more productivity out of that, you're going to see the, uh, you're going to see the adoption sort of go off of that. Now, I think what's going to end up happening, I think that's sort of going to be a slow growth. What's going to end up happening is once you get to a certain saturation, whether it's any business partner, any network, whatever, I think you'll start seeing different parties start opting themselves into these networks to start engaging with this whole assortment of different uh, businesses that are already operating on it. So if it was XRP or whatever, you might have Ripple bring on 10 different banks. And now that those 10 different banks are on, you may see a bunch of different small businesses, startups. They may start hopping onto these networks to engage with those banks. And then those business partners will hop onto those networks and engage with those business partners in those banks and so on and so forth. So, Thank you so much, Quincy. And I want to give Johnny and Gonzo just a chance to ask a question before we move on. This live chat continues to grow right now, guys. We are at 600 live listeners here. Show us some love and smash that like button. I put a poll at the top of the chat asking our listeners what asset they believe would perform best during the bull market of 2025, XR, XRP or XDC. So please go and vote on that. Johnny and Gonzo, do you guys have any quick questions before we get into this Ripple article? Yeah, I've Who's winning the... Uh... I just wanted to see who's uh, what's because I can't see the statistic on that. Is it XDC or is it XRP? Because 
when you look at it, like, so XRP ended up doing like a 93% gain, but XDC did like 189% off the bottom in 12 days. Now it's kind of settled at about 120. So XDC has done better off the bottom. So I'm just curious what people think in the chat. Uh, but the other oh, comment- Bronco, I have is, the answer for you. I have the answer. Yeah, so we got, we got 386 votes on this poll, guys. So shout out to you for cooperating with us. 77% believe XRP will outperform XDC. So Quincy, don't leave the show on that note. We still love your information here, my friend. But Gonzo, the good, any closing comments? Well, the good thing is that you don't have to pick, right? It's not either or. We always say this. And I think Quincy, it goes back to what Quincy's comment was about these different blockchains that are going to be very specific. Some are, like he was saying, going to be for documents, for financial payments. Some are going to be for gaming, right? Some are going to be for NFTs. They're going to be multiple chains at the end of the day that grow in network effect and that kind of rise to the top. And it's not just gonna be one chain that rules them all, it's gonna be multiple. And that's why we always talk about like having multiple races in the horse. Um, you know, as much as the, you know, Ghost loves to say that I'm an ETH Maxi, I like Ethereum, I like what they're doing. You know, I like the layer twos and how they're, you know, if they're with their ZK technology, but I also love XCC, I love XRP, I love Bitcoin. There, there are multiple blockchains and I think they're gonna be multiple blockchains at the end of the day. Gonzo, you said something hilarious there. It wasn't a switch of the flip. It was how many races are in the horse, Johnny Crypto? But I, I want to remind our listeners, guys. He pulled the, he pulled the abs. He pulled the abs. Right? Respect. Yeah. I guess I'm rubbing abs. off on Gonzo in these you're, chats. You're rubbing off on me, abs. That is like my favorite saying now. What's yours, Johnny? I mean, it's, it's a valid statement. Like, if a horse, a horse can race multiple races, so how many races can it run? Like, he's not true, wrong, man. and and you can switch the flip, Johnny. It's not just flip the switch, right? So yeah, both of us are correct. I guess if you guys are looking to justify yourselves, but don't worry, I got plenty of those isms too. I got a question for Quincy. I think so, Quincy. We always talk about all the time on this show about adoption, right? Adoption being something that's critical for uh, for these things to eventually take off in the future. Um, and so the question I have for you is when people or institutions come to you guys to want to be able to, let's say, build in XDC or be able to leverage the blockchain, do they come to you and do they sign NDAs? So there's a lot of the stuff that the agreements that you're working with in these companies, stuff that's confidential that you guys aren't able to talk to. Yeah, everything dealing with the traditional business world is super confidential, everything. Um, most uh, of these businesses aren't we're getting, a, we're getting an audio issue. Can you adjust your microphone very briefly? We're getting a, a rubbing sound. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, we're still having that audio issue. It's like robotic. Well, we're going to give Quincy a couple of seconds here to fix his microphone, guys. And we are going to come back to that uh, question right there. Oh, there we go. Right right yeah, it's better. How's this? Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I got a phone call and it totally screwed up my, uh, my whatever. Anyhow, um, <laughs> repeat your question again. Goodness, God. I almost so my that. question was, one of the things. Oh, that yeah, we confidentiality. Always, I confidentiality and NDAs, yeah. Yeah, so everything dealing. So there's sort of a huge split in blockchain technology. Um, you see this huge open source culture in one direction, and then you sort of see adoption for businesses in another direction. Open source culture is great because you can see what everyone's doing. Everyone can talk about what they're doing. Everyone can say their hopes and dreams and tell you everything. But when it comes to traditional businesses, they're not like super transparent about the entirety of their tech stack and the entirety of their business, usually because they want to have some level of security. They want to have some level of trust. Uh, they, they have very, very, very sensitive information, sensitive, uh, whether sensitive documents, whether it's KYC or, or PII data, whatever it may be, they have very, very sensitive uh, data that they want to be very, and most of this has to do with compliance and dealing with their clients and whatever it may be. Um, but the biggest thing is uh, they 
they want to move over to these different technologies as a way to expand their businesses. So usually the biggest reasons I see is they want a easier mean to integrate, to engage with more trade partners. They want to offset the costs of their traditional uh, infrastructure by being able to offset it on a decentralized infrastructure. Um, or they want to be able to in integrate into new technologies and sort of experiment a little bit. Um, the biggest thing about it that I end up seeing is, at least with the experimental technologies, and you may see sort of startups that fall into this, is they have an idea that operates in the traditional Web 2 world or traditional cloud world, and they want to see if they can implement it into the crypto world. Uh, like I said, whether it's to make more productivity, whether it's to make it a bit cheaper, whether it's to uh, allow to engage with more trade partners, or whether they want to be able to migrate themselves onto a new technology that may be promising, and they may not be sure where it may be, where it may be going, but they want to be one of the first ones to do it. There's also a huge competition on who's going to be able to adopt these new technologies first and utilize them best because obviously if you're able to get there first you utilize it really well you're able to essentially get ahead of a lot of your competition but for the most part yeah a lot of these businesses they operate with like loose lips sink ships type of type of deal they are very much and by sink ships i mean they get sued out of oblivion because you know some private data got compromised or whatever um but the biggest thing is uh they're very 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 um they're very private about how they operate. Now, this isn't a terrible thing at all, although we do see sort of these weird ramifications of it. Uh, there's a lot of activity and a lot of growth that's happening, especially on XTC that doesn't that doesn't necessarily get the uh, attention it deserves because a lot of these different uh, participants in all these different businesses are actively trying to make sure that, and this is no different than any other business, really. Uh, most businesses don't broadcast how they use their technology stack to the entire world uh, before they offer uh, some sort of uh, some sort of service. Typically, they kind of just offer the service and that's that. But with with Web3, things tend to be a lot of it, a little bit different because of the uh, open source culture. But um, but no, there's a lot of activity that's going on that gets a little bit unrecognized simply because of that. But that doesn't change the fact that the activity is still there and a lot of businesses are trying a lot of new things to be able to integrate into their uh, software stack. Yeah, and in fact, that's kind of the argument I've been making and, and said on this show that I think it's more important if you're not hearing about the discussions because it means there's a lot of activity that's going on behind the scenes, as you just described, that they can't talk about. Because as you said, nobody wants to give away how they're doing stuff. I get worried when I start seeing articles saying, hey, we're using this technology, we're using that technology, because that's probably a bunch of horse bullshit, because most of these companies aren't going to tell the world how they're doing stuff because they want a competitive advantage, right? Like you just said. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, I'm happy to see that we're not hearing a lot of things happen because I think it'll happen later or a lot of the stuff will just be back end the way things work. And most people don't care anyway how the back end works, right? As long as yeah, I can want to call you, nobody cares how my call gets to you. They just want it to work, right? Exactly. I think one thing that gets completely overlooked and people focus on partnerships a lot, but one thing that you're probably going to end up seeing probably more and more into the future, or I guess less and less in this regard, is a lot of businesses, uh, a perfect example is um, Amazon Web Services is the biggest cloud provider. Uh, in the world, um, you know, right behind or right behind that is like Azure and Google Cloud. But all of your favorite apps operate in AWS, but they don't broadcast that to you. Uh, Netflix operates in AWS, Tesla operates in AWS, the NASDAQ operates in AWS. All these businesses operate in AWS, but they're not going to broadcast that to the whole world. It doesn't really matter to them. The servers being a good service is what matters. And I think you're going to see the same thing with blockchain technology. I think a lot of different businesses are sort of broadcasting it in terms of hype. And I mean, I think you end up seeing hype cycles anyway. So even with cloud technologies, you may see, oh, we're going cloud, we're going hype. It's, it's the same sort of hype cycle. But as those cycles die down, I think you're just going to start seeing businesses build different things. And they're just going to offer those services to their users and the users aren't going to care or know or anything on how the backend operates they're just going to use them and they may notice that these are these these services are more efficient than other ones like when you see payment terminals and you see stuff like that you may say 
oh, look, I can make a payment instantly as opposed to settling overnight or settling over the weekend uh, or or even one with brokers firms. You might be able to see that you can actually have instant liquidity into different assets as opposed to waiting 24 hours or potentially three to five days to settle. There's stuff like that that can potentially be very beneficial for the user, but it's not like they're going to know what network these are operating on. And that's the fundamental shift I think many of our listeners are waiting for. The second your grandma opens her bank account and says, my payments are instant, but I have no idea why is the moment that many of our listeners become millionaires. And we got 596 live listeners here. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And this is an article I think every single listener should be aware of because the Bank of England has adopted Ripple's interledger protocol for payment settlement. And this is fresh off the printing press, only eight hours old. The Bank of England has taken a significant step in exploring the potential Ripple Interledger protocol for synchronized settlement of payments. In a newly published paper titled Ripple, Exploring the Synchronized Settlement of Payments Using Interledger Protocol, the Bank of England delves into its successful integration of Ripple's solution with a two-simulated real-time gross payment system. By connecting various payment networks, financial institutions, and digital assets, this new protocol aims to create a seamless and efficient payment ecosystem for the future of finance here. And there's just one more sentence I'd like to read. The adoption of Ripple's interledger protocol by a reputable institution like the Bank of England may serve as a catalyst for further exploration and adoption of blockchain-based solutions in the financial sector. And Quincy, that's what I started the show off with. The second we see a massive financial firm like the Bank of England use this tech, every single financial firm not leveraging it has a massive disadvantage. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that here. How big of news is this, the fact that we're seeing this integration in 2023, and how long do you anticipate until we see this real-world utility become the main way of transacting all of these, I guess, digital assets? Um, I think actually the means of it being the main way for transacting digital assets is more of a political one than a technical one. Uh, Technically speaking, if everyone came together and sang hands kumbaya and said, we're going to use these technologies to do X, Y, and Z, y'all could very easily. But in terms of like what type of regulation goes around that, what are implications in terms of being able to sell assets to someone you potentially may not know and how do you verify them? And I think there are so many other things that are more politically, uh, uh, more political barriers than there are technical ones. Um, and I say this as someone who's like, uh, the people who write the laws aren't the same people who write the code. And the people who write the code aren't the same people who understand the laws. So there's very much a bit of overlap that's going to need to be done in order for these to be expedited. I think it's happening every single day, um, at least in my personal life, I see or in my work life. I see a lot of different technologies being talked about, being integrated, being uh, legislated on, and stuff like that. But I think the biggest thing that's going to determine a the, the maximum saturation needed for the total amount of growth on any these networks is a political one and it's mostly just around certain regulations it's how people engage with their trade partners what it means to engage on an international scale and what it means to potentially violate any sort of rules on that international scale there's a lot of ways to go about that but yeah from a technical standpoint it's not technically challenging if everyone sort of like that everyone got together and held hold hands and all said we're all going to do this they could um but at the same time if they all came together and held hands and said we're going to use aws they could too so the means of how they go about instituting these technologies is the hard part not the technologies itself johnny crypto i got a brief follow-up for you here and i'm going to read this patent for our listeners before i kick it over to you the bank of england released a new paper called ripple exploring the synchronized settlement of payments using their interledger protocol but this was the sentence that really caught my attention The Bank of England stated, we successfully integrated with the Ripple solution with two simulated real-time gross settlement payments. That's something that if we showed six months ago, you wouldn't believe. This is real news, Johnny Crypto. So I just want to get your open take. Obviously, we got Quincy on the show. Everyone wants to hear from him. 
What do you think? Is this another example of MoneyGram like testing the technology but not actually implementing it? Or is this much bigger? Could we really see Ripple used by the Bank of England? Well, so two thoughts go through my head. First of all, you know they're experimenting with they're playing with it, right? And they're reporting here that they, they did a trial. I mean, to me, it feels like they're saying, hey, we did a trial and we were successfully able to integrate it and make it work and learn from it. To me, that's what it feels like. Now, whether they're you know implementing and going to use it, it goes back to the conversation that we just had, you know, with with us and Quincy as to whether or not, you know, making it public and are you really going to launch with the te- you know, so are they using it as a trial to learn something and then go implement their own thing, or are they just gonna leverage this one? That's the one element that we don't know. I mean, logically you would think if they're playing with this technology and they like it, it would be the one that they would leverage and go forward with. But there's always the other side of the coin is, hey, what can we learn from what's out there today? And what can we make that's better or something else different? And that's the part that we don't know, because I totally agree 100% with Quincy that this is not a technical challenge at this point anymore, as much as it is more of a political challenge of who's going to have control of the reins. And that, to me, is the, the part we, we just don't know. Um, and that's what we'll have to wait and see in the long run. But certainly, that is fantastic news that they were able to integrate with the technology find the bugs. I'm sure they ran into a bunch of bugs and they fixed them and they, or, or maybe they still have some that they they're working on, but at least that they're able to, in their mind, to find it as successful tells you that whatever goals they set out in this trial to learn, sounds like they were able to, they were able to learn them. Absolutely guys. And with all these 603 live listeners here, we're going to show you the smartest way to track your crypto. Have you gotten wrecked in the crypto market space or watched your crypto portfolio go all the way up and then all the way down without taking profits? If so, it's probably because you didn't have an exit plan. The good news is that doesn't need to happen anymore thanks to a new and innovative crypto tracker called Merlin. It's the smartest way to track your crypto. Merlin brings all your coins into one place so you can see all your assets across the different exchanges on one screen. You can see your total portfolio value and more importantly, your daily gains, losses, and total since inception. Merlin puts the power back in your hands so you no longer have to guess what your portfolio is doing on a daily or monthly basis. Most importantly... Merlin lets you create an exit plan and sends you notifications when your targets are reached so you no longer have to get wrecked in the marketplace. Go to MerlinCrypto.com. That's MerlinCrypto.com and sign up for our free 30-day trial and get on the wait list so you can receive an email when the product is launched. Don't miss out on this new and innovative app, Merlin. It's the smartest way to track your crypto. Guys, the most exciting part about this application is you're going to get 30 days absolutely free to test out all this technology. You saw that the Bank of England is beta testing. Ripple is beta testing. Now we got Merlin beta testing as well. And with that being said, Quincy, we're going to get right into this video right here because this is an exciting take. Many of our listeners are confused about the ruling that came from Ripple. But after watching this video, I think that's going to dispel all of the claims going on right now. A whole bunch of assets shot up in price after a decision was released in the XRP lawsuit. I'm a regulatory attorney by trade, and so I have an analysis for the crypto asset investors. Remember, this is all about how crypto assets move. Prior to this decision, regulators have been saying that all crypto assets are securities and need to move like securities. The problem with that is that crypto assets will work if they need to move like securities. Security laws say that securities can only move between government licensed intermediaries, but crypto assets are usually part of consumer facing software applications. And so they need to move freely between consumers and the software applications. For example, you need to expend ETH 
to use the Ethereum software. And you wouldn't be able to do that if your ETH was held by a broker on Wall Street who hasn't updated their website since 2002. So that last week, Judge Torrens rejected the regulator's argument, ruling that specifically XRP is not a security is a big deal because now that risk that has been facing builders for the past five years of regulator punishment just got reduced. This is... And that's what I really wanted to focus on, Quincy. As a builder, as a developer in this space, what did you take away before we move on here and get into some other articles? What did you take away from the Ripple ruling? Did it dispel, I guess, some of the fears that you have being a developer in the space? Do you feel like you can operate more freely and with more transparency after this ruling from Judge Torres? Um, I think it's a good start, especially with, um, I think it's a good start, especially with the XRP network. I think what's it going to do is it's going to start setting the stage for other networks as well. Um, for the most part, I think it, it puts a bit more ease on the future of crypto because the ambiguity of whether it's a security or not is sort of like when it's held over the head of whether it's Ripple or whether it's uh, any other network, um, everyone's sort of hesitant. And now that it's sort of been re- relieved a little bit, I, I can sort of see just sort of in my own personal life that um, not only other developers, but other business other businesses are a lot more open to adopting these technologies now that doesn't necessarily mean they're willing to just hop on and start reorganizing their entire technology stack but it does mean that sort of anxiety around what would happen is sort of resolved in a bit and before i saw different companies projects whatever that were a bit more ballsy hopping in saying whatever happens happens if he dies he dies sort of deal uh where now i'm starting to see a little bit more conservative businesses come in and say we feel a bit more comfortable, not so comfortable to just completely overhaul and adopt, completely overhaul and adopt our technology, but comfortable enough to start testing things out, start playing around with things to maybe even start integrating different software products into our services. And um, it's a slow roll, but it's very much opened up the space a bit for people to start experimenting more uh, without essentially this anxiety uh, of, of this ruling hanging over their head. You know, and I think the other thing it did, too, was it kind of really set the standard to show you that anything, and you kind of said this earlier on in the show, Quincy, I just want to reiterate it because people are getting confused. Anything can or cannot be a security. It's just a matter of how it's pitched to the public. And that's really the key. And I think if these organizations or anybody coming out with a new cryptocurrency is smart, they're going to look at this Ripple case and say, okay, we can't pitch it to the public and promise an appreciation and we can't be an entity that's doing work to make that happen and, and as long as people avoid that those elements of the howie test then then abs you'll end up seeing that a lot of these things can operate as not being a security as long as you know they're sold through an exchange and they're sold uh you know without that promise that's going to to make it a non-security right right now as the ruling stands and so as you heard that video you played, I don't know if that was guy was AI or not, but he pretty much stated why the problem would be if it was if it was a security, it would limit. And actually, Jeremy Hogan said the same thing when we had him on the show a few months ago. If it were if it were deemed a security, it would really limit the ability to use it worldwide. So I think the blueprints now given we know what you need to do to avoid being a security. Don't follow the Hollywood rules, <laughs> how we rule. Make sure you're avoiding it. Make sure you're not pitching it as a promise, as a return. And, and these things will be able to operate as non-securities. Quincy, this is another major article that's circulating right now is the development team at X, which was formerly Twitter, is working on a coins tab for the application. So this is just a brief article here. I wanted to get your opinion on this. Elon Musk has stated many times he's going to make X the number one payment platform on the planet. 
And in my opinion, if he's going to do that, it's going to have to incorporate crypto. So what I'm asking you here is, do you believe we'll see a day where we have crypto payments on platforms like Twitter and Uber? And if so, how far away do you think that is? So this may not be a very popular opinion. I don't think I don't think the future of crypto is per, is retail based or interpersonal. I don't know how to describe it. I don't think people are going to be utilizing these platforms to just send crypto to each other. Now, I don't doubt that they may utilize crypto on the back end to make it a lot easier to like source liquidity for their users and be able to move funds around the world for their users. Like, you know, I'm in the U.S. and maybe somebody's in Japan and I'm trying to send money to them. They might use some back end crypto network to do so. Um, and maybe sort of in the hype cycle, you might see them start integrating different uh, tokens or whatever. Um, but I don't really think that's going to be the future that that everyone's going to see. And the reason I say that is um, the level of technical complexity is pretty high. So even if they didn't integrate that coins tab, I would guarantee less than like 1% of crypto users would ever use it. Um, where if they just integrated a means to just send value and they use the crypto networks, like 80% of crypto, 80% of people would probably use it, but not because it's crypto, even though it may use crypto on the back end, but because it facilitates a service that's easy to in interact with and easy to use. I think you see the same thing with the like NFT profile pictures. Um, like how many people truly have NFT profile pictures and to what degree does that really matter for the platform? Um, pretty much next to none. Um, but that doesn't mean that like they couldn't integrate some sort of feature to where like, let's say you tied some verification badge to your identity and that was associated as an NFT and, it, and that's the same function that's used for your NFT picture can be utilized as, I don't know, a verified document passport or whatever. I don't know, whatever. That is something that could be very much tangible, but um, I don't think it's going to be in the same consumer-based way that we see the current crypto markets operating now. I think it's going to go through the back. Oh, was that? Sorry, Quincy. I was going to say, what if we saw, because Elon Musk has hinted at this before, in order to publish an article that's verified, you had to pay a half of a Dogecoin. Do you think that we could see something like that that incentivizes people like us to use these currencies? So I am a full. I am a like. I genuinely believe that the future of crypto will be these microtransactions, but just not in that capacity. Um, I think, and a perfect example of this is let's say Twitter had a feature that operated on the blockchain. Now, Twitter users could probably utilize that feature for free, but let's say Facebook wanted to utilize a Twitter feature so they can have Twitter features on Facebook. Facebook might have to source the liquidity to pay that half a cent doge or whatever, half a cent whatever, to pay to access that functionality. Um, but the users on Facebook aren't going to be holding that coin to do so. It's just going to be liquidity sourced from the platform that's utilizing that feature for its users that's going to do so. So I'm a full believer of these microtransaction payments. That's going to be one of the biggest things that crypto is going to allow for, especially with smart contracts. But I don't believe it's going to be the users that are paying them. I think it's going to be services that are being provided to the user and then different businesses that are essentially forwarding the liquidity to access that function from another uh, platform. Like I said, if Twitter integrated, a, if, let's say, here's a perfect example. Let's say Twitter started allowing their users tweets. Now, from the user perspective, the tweets are no different. Actually, I don't think they're called tweets anymore. I think they're called posts. But um, let's say the users um, can make these posts. And let's say these posts actually reside on some specific blockchain. We'll say blockchain X, right? Um, well, from the user perspective, they're probably not going to pay to access their tweets. They're just going to access their tweets. But if you wanted to see those same tweets on Facebook, Facebook can easily have access to those tweets, pay the half a cent, and essentially Facebook forwards the liquidity so those users can essentially allow access to those tweets. Now, you may start seeing different sort of subscription services pop up to essentially offset this cost because, you know, you know, 50 million executions for a tweet, that's a, that's a half a cent, ends up being quite, quite expensive. 
Um, but I think that's going to be a huge thing that can allow for profitability among these different uh, among these different uh, platforms and allow for an easier, more cohesive means of being able to share that information. And actually, this is almost very much analogous to how APIs would operate, except the biggest thing with APIs is usually it's usually there's a means of trying to set them up, allowing people to pay for them and allowing them to have some sort of basic access and maintenance over them, where if they're just essentially accessing a smart contract, they don't need to essentially have that level of maintenance over it. And anyone can very much access it at, at will without them having some sort of load on their system to access it. So with that, you may end up seeing tweets on Facebook and Facebook posts on Twitter by both of those, um, by both of those, uh, you know, bits of data being on chain and then both platforms referencing the chain data to allow for that information to be present on their platform. Right now, you can do that with APIs. It's just not as cohesive. Twitter's API is completely different than Facebook API, which is totally different than Instagram's API, which is totally different than everybody else. And being able to cohesively put all these APIs together to create a cohesive platform is quite difficult. Where if these were operating as smart contracts, the, inter the means of integrating with one smart contract is just as easy as it is to integrate with every smart contract on the platform or on, on the network. So instead of trying to, uh, Factor your uh, trying to refactor your code base to 10,000 different APIs. Well, you really have one basic API that can interact with 10,000 smart contracts, which makes it easier for everyone to interact with every type of application. That's really, really interesting, Quincy. And a brief follow up here when it comes to Elon Musk. This is something that has been circulating on Twitter several times over the years, but I wanted to get your take on this. Back in 2013, five wallets were created, and obviously, these names speak for themselves. Three of them are owned by a, by a name called Musk. One is Peter Thiel, one is Andreessen Horswitz, and one is Asimov, which I haven't done my research on yet. The question I have for you, Quincy, is in this wallet on November 25th of 2013, the, the wallet named Musk purchased nearly 17 million XRP. And what's so exciting about that, that money is yet to be touched. So the question I have for you is, did someone just name this wallet Musk, or do you actually believe Elon Musk is not only aware of XRP, but maybe even owns 17 million? Um, I have no idea what to make of that. Um, Elon Musk has been a public figure for a really long time, so it wouldn't surprise me if someone just called it Musk, and even if someone just said Peter Thiel or whatever. Um, the thing that makes no sense to me is, like, Elon Musk is a really smart guy, like, absolutely brilliant, visionary, genius, everything, you know? Um, and I've never really seen him really talk very much on blockchain technology. He's touched on proof of work. He's touched on uh, Bitcoin, but never really like like whenever I talk about technology, and I try to I try to see forward into the future of what it would look like. And I believe he would have a better time doing that than I could, uh, especially with his expertise, with his skill set, with his teams and everything. Uh, but yeah, I've never seen him really quite start diving into the future of what blockchain could look like. Um, I think that could end up being how should I put it? I think, I think, yeah, maybe it could end up being Musk, but I think I'm more leaning towards it potentially just being not really quite a troll account. Maybe someone's thinking that they're funny. I have no idea. But the thing is, is the thing that makes me sort of hesitant is I haven't really seen him really talk about blockchain in depth to where I haven't, there hasn't been any sort of conversation that Elon Musk has had that, that has made me confident that this would be his account simply because I haven't seen him really talk very much on the future of blockchain. And the ones and the things he does talk about are really basic things like proof of work is super energy intensive. What are we going to do? But you could spend one week in blockchain to basically find that out. So I'm not really sure what to make of that. Thank you, Quincy. And one of our listeners said it was a goofball speculative question. I agree in many ways. I do think it's a goofball question, but there are people interested. And maybe at some point there will be a day where Elon Musk acknowledges better currencies than Dogecoin and Bitcoin. 
if guys like Johnny Crypto and Gonzo and Abs and Quincy can figure this stuff out, I'm sure Elon Musk can figure this stuff out, guys. But we got 610 live listeners here. Show us some love. Smash that like button. And I want to say thank you to Quincy for making time for us this morning. This is something all of our listeners are also aware of, Quincy. The Faster Payments Council and Ripple have launched a second annual blockchain and crypto payments survey to gauge the industry perspectives on the use of blockchain and crypto payments. Now, I don't have a question about that. What I do have a question on is we saw the FedNow payment system go live in July. Many people were speculating about what that actually means for these markets. So I'm going to ask you broadly, when you look at the FedNow payment system, is this a step towards incorporating blockchain and crypto assets? Or is this just enhancing fiat fiat payments from your perspective? Um, It seems like a further progression of fiat payments. I think what's happening is I do believe they're using distributed ledger technologies. It doesn't mean it's blockchain. Um, It doesn't mean it's blockchain. But I do believe they're using distributed ledger technologies to essentially create a more effective payment system among the United States. Um, I think, and I think that's sort of inevitable. Um, uh, What ends up happening is I believe that, at least this is my own speculation or whatever, um, but I believe what's going to end up happening is every sort of bank institution may almost operate as its own masternode on this sort of private network of fiat currency, CBDC, whatever. Um, And just like you would operate on a blockchain where you have these masternodes, these token allocators, this and that, this and that, I think you may end up seeing this decentralized network in terms of these uh, banks coming together, the Fed coming together and allowing an easier means to uh, credit the accounting for different assets. Now, like I said, it doesn't mean it's blockchain. It could be it could be a host of different technologies. It could be Hyperledger, it could be Corda, it could be some sort of built-in proprietary technology that they built themselves. But I do believe that the inspiration from uh, blockchain technology and distributed ledger technology is present um, just due to some of the features that seem to be uh, presented, like instant payments and the means of allowing, uh, like I said, payments uh, happening within seconds rather than overnight or over the weekend, um, just credit being able to be uh, accessed freely. And I think what ends, what's going to end up happening is I think it's just going to be more of a cohesive means for the banks to communicate with each other um, rather than not. Because a good example of this is, do you guys actually know why Zelle was even created? It's kind of funny. No, um, can you tell us? Yeah, so the top 30 banks in the United States were actually very much annoyed at apps like PayPal, Cash App, and all these other apps because it would create these just basic, it would create these barriers between the banks in terms of actually being able to send money. So they all came together, the top 30 banks came together and said, we're going to create our own payment means in which we're all going to be able to credit. And I think it's not really a payment means, it's sort of a uh, an IOU credit system that gets settled overnight. Um, but they essentially created their own sort of uh, payment terminal between each other. And that's why some banks offer, most banks offer Zelle, but some may not. Um, but they created their own payment terminal so they can essentially cut out these third parties and cut out the friction from these third parties and just interact with each other directly. I think this is just the next step of progression in that, in that, um, in, in their technological progression, where instead of having a zillion different payment providers try to provide the same service, um, just having a simple means to have the banks, almost like how we look at peer-to-peer, well, the banks are almost looking at a simple peer-to-peer service rather than this sort of antiquated overnight IOU ticketing system, essentially, because that's really how the payment system works today. Whenever you see a payment go from your account to somebody else's account, you didn't really get the payment. Bank A just sent Bank B an IOU, and they'll go settle it at a later time. 
That's very interesting. And Gonzo, I'd love to give you the open floor here. I just want to preface it by saying we found earlier this week, we reported something from Wells Fargo where they said in the next four to seven months, XRP's price target could reach three figures. But we got a follow-up video to show our listeners here breaking down how the banking system has been working with this technology for a very long time. But before we do that, Gonzo, I'd love to give you the floor. Yeah, I just wanted to say goodbye. Goodbye to Quincy. Thanks for being with us today. I got to go. But I just wanted to thank the chat for all the support. What's great about this show is that we're able to come here and talk about different blockchains or different cryptocurrencies or digital assets or what it is. And sometimes we convince each other and sometimes we don't. But as long as we have that open dialogue and we're able to communicate back and forth in a respectful way, I think that's the whole point of the show. So love you guys and thanks. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Gonzo. We appreciate you. Love you too, Gonzo. Johnny Crypto, you're going to like this next video we have for our listeners as we've waited for a very long time for U.S. banks to get involved in this market. Well, a leader, Monica Long, the president of Ripple, is now talking about how the U.S. market is finally engaging with their product. It's been a couple of weeks now since uh, the judge's ruling in our case, uh, providing clarity that XRP is not a security, um, which is, we're very happy about because there's a lot of clarity in terms of how Ripple will operate its business going forward. Um, and we are, you know, re-engaging with a lot of the U.S. market. Uh, but really, a lot of our growth over the years has been outside of the U.S. I think that's reflective of where there is regulatory clarity, places like the U.K., Europe, uh, Singapore, uh, Dubai, and the Middle East. Um, these are jurisdictions that have provided clear frameworks and rules. Um, so that's where we see a lot of growth for our business around payments. Yeah, and Monica, the UK was uh, singled out as one of the big countries in the Statista report as one of the big hubs for fintech. Uh, is that a, a country where you're looking to kind of up your investment, uh, particularly as the UK wants to become a, a crypto hub with specific regulations uh, tailored to crypto companies? Is that where you're looking to put more of your operations going forward? Absolutely. So uh, our, our large hub offices, of course, we, we have a presence in the US, but our presence in London has grown significantly over the years. Um, that office has more than doubled in size, and uh, we have a pretty large footprint in terms of our customer base uh, throughout Europe and the Middle East. Dubai is another key office for us, as well as Singapore. Um, so we've seen a lot of growth through Europe, Middle East, Asia Pacific, um, and Latin America has been a, a region that has certainly been heating up for us. We have. Uh, key office there in Sao Paulo. Well, Quincy, it's like they say, it all starts in London for the XRP community. And what I found so interesting about this video is the article we prefaced with, with at the beginning of the show. Today, the Bank of England announced their integration with Ripple's Interledger protocol. And to me, that's what Monica Long is hinting at here. Regardless of the lawsuit that we saw in the United States, right now, banks around the world are excited to use this technology, not only because they can make a lot of money, but because it can speed up their systems and make it more efficient. The question that I have for you is, do you think we're very close to a day where we see American banks start using products like XDC, like XRP, because of this latest ruling? Yeah, actually, I think we're already seeing that. We're seeing that in Europe, actually, quite a bit. Um, but that's the thing. I think to the degree to the degree in which we see it, I think will be limited, but we're already seeing it. Um, and the reason I say that is it goes back to the business thing. Like just because some government or some company or some bank adopts some technology, they're not gonna broadcast it to the whole world. Actually, perfect example of this, and they did broadcast it to the whole world was uh, there was a defense 
this was with AWS. There was like a defense contract with AWS for like, like $200 billion or something. Um, and that was something that was broadcasted, but most people didn't care. And it would be the same thing with blockchain. The only reason people care in blockchain is because they're sort of invested in these networks. But for the most part, most people don't really care about what technologies are used for these different services they interact with. And as a developer, this is something I've encountered on, on like a personal basis. They just care that it does the thing. Does it work? Does it work well? Does it do the thing? I don't want to think about it. It just does it. I don't care. And that's what most people really like. That's the most people's engagement with a lot of these technologies. And these businesses know that. These governments know that. Uh, they're putting forth the services first, not the chains. So they'll say, oh, we have this, we have that, we have this, we have that. Now they may sort of talk and broadcast that we are using these technologies so other businesses and other countries and other whatever can be aware of that. And you may see little articles pop up here and there, but I don't think it's gonna be like the biggest, most broadcasted thing in the world um, for every little thing, uh, for every little bit of technology that's adopted. I think you'll see a little bit of that. Like I said, in these hype cycles, you'll see that a bit. But I think as things become more mature, um, it's just going to be some sort of, it's just going to be looked at as a technology stack that needs to be adopted in a certain way to engage with different services around the world. Quincy, I've got a really interesting XDC question I'd like to ask you, but I'm going to go to this article first before I ask you another XDC question. Yeah. This morning, yeah. Oh, did you say, hey, Abs? No, I said, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, perfect. So Hyundai's Motor Group announced this morning that they are implementing a new CO2 emission monitoring system on top of Hedera Hashgraph. So we haven't talked about HBAR yet, but this is another project that has amazing partnerships. And you said, it's not what you do, it's who you know. And now Hyundai's working with Hedera. So what does it mean to you? Is Hedera a project that you're keeping an eye on? And how do you feel about, I guess, adoption articles like these? Um, yeah, so I don't follow Hedera too much. I do believe um, I do believe their Hashgraph technology is pretty impressive, it's pretty cool. Um, but I haven't really been keeping up with Hedera, Hedera too much. Um, and I think this is a perfect example of what I mean by uh, when they utilize these technologies, they're trying to facilitate a specific type of service. So it seems as if Hedera has some element of their technology that can help provide this specific type of service with, would you say it was Hyundai? Um, I think all that is, is they're utilizing this technology stack in a way that makes their business more effective. And I think they found Hedera to be one of the technologies that may be interesting to be able to try out. We'll see how this works. But I think you're going to see a lot of different uh, businesses and technologies operate in the same way. And you, as you notice, it's not exclusively around finance. There's a zillion different ways. Code can be run, can be used to run basically anything. We look at finance because we see the means of being able to move value, but it can really create an application or a uh, technology stack that can support really anything. You could see technologies in terms of automotives. You can see technologies in terms of supply chain. You can see technologies around applications. You can see technologies around startups. You can see technologies around finance. You can see technologies around anything that anything that runs code right now, you may see some sort of adoption around blockchain technology to provide specific services around whatever that would already, would, uh, around whatever services already being uh, provided. The idea is that this is more effective than the previous way of doing things. So let's see what we can do to essentially allow for a more, pro a more productive uh, service that we're providing. And that's a perfect segue into this topic right here. One of our listeners halftime commented, why is nobody talking about XTC trade finance going live next month? XTC is about to go crazy this year. And we had another listener, Henry, down here. He said, highly consider XTC's integration into trade finance and supply chain management. This will be huge globally. And Quincy, you're the perfect person to address that. So are our listeners correct? Is this a massive development for the XDC network? Yeah, so you're seeing a lot of, so this is actually the funniest thing. There's a lot of engagement on XDC all the time. It's just in Singapore, India, 
uh, Korea. It's it's uh, it's not quite in the Western world. Oh, but that's the that's the thing. It actually uh, when it was created by Zinfan, it was originated in Singapore. So there's actually a lot of activity going on FTC all the time. You just don't see it in the United. You don't see it in the American news because a lot of that activity is uh, being sourced uh, overseas. Now I think you're seeing a lot more activity uh, start growing in Europe, and that's one of the biggest places of growth right now for XTC is being able to tokenize documents and being able to. Uh, and you're actually starting to see Euro stablecoins too pop up on XTC as well. Uh, so you're starting to see it branch out from those uh, Asian nations and more into these European nations and eventually into these United States, uh, into the United States. But the biggest thing is there's a lot of there's a lot of advancements happening in a lot of different ways, and a lot of these businesses are just running their business. So you have Zinfin, Trade Trust, you have Trade Finex. Uh, you have all these different businesses that are doing different things, and they're just utilizing the technology to allow for the business to be a bit more efficient. But as they grow their business, they also grow the adoption of the technology because their business partners adopt the technology. As their business partners adopt the technology, they start improving their business. So they end up getting a higher level of growth. As they get a higher level of growth, other businesses will start adopting the technology so they can also replicate that growth. You're seeing a lot of, like I said, you're seeing a lot of growth um, all over the world with XDC. You just don't quite see it here because it wasn't necessarily originated here. Europe seems to be the big spot right now. Like I said, right for the longest bit, it seemed to be Singapore. But right now, Europe is the biggest spot. There's yours, uh, the Euro stable coins that are popping up, which is allowing for a ton of different uh, applications to be built around Euros. Uh, soon you'll start seeing more US stable coins, whether it's USD, USDT, USDC, whatever it may be. But Europe is like the, like the and mostly because Europe seems to, be, seems to have a bit more of a, uh, regulatory clarity around it. There's been a lot of different um, legislation around tokenizing documents, tokenizing identities, and stable coins. And um, so that's really where a lot of the that's where a lot of the technological and uh, total adoption is uh, happening currently. Um, but we're seeing it happen all over the world. Like I said, for the longest time it was Singapore that was growing. Now it's Europe. You're gonna see a lot big, a lot more of uh, the technology growing in the United States as you start seeing more clarity on things in the United States. And I think that's kind of actually a good way to look at it. Um, the, t the amount of adoption isn't really about the speed of which people adopt the technology, but the speed, it's almost like the political thing again. It's the speed of which there's some sort of level of clarity around that technology in which people are gonna engage with. In Singapore, they're very lax around uh, the means of adopting these technologies. So a lot of these new businesses can very easily jump into XCC and start building new things. Europe is now becoming a lot more defined in their regulation and their rules around these technologies. So now you're seeing that as well. The United States is lagging behind, so you end up seeing the United States lag behind a little bit as well. So. Thank you, Quincy. Sorry, I was highlighting that page in the back end. But one of the things I really wanted to focus on here is that the SEC went after Hex this weekend. And I know we're bouncing all over the place, but we only get to talk so often. So I'm going to ask a billion questions. One of the things everyone's been very, I guess, critical of is how the SEC has gone about regulating this market. But this week, they went after the founder of the Hex token, Richard Hart, for using customer funds for personal I guess Gucci bags is what, what, if you look at his Instagram. So what do you think about that? Is the SEC finally doing something correctly here? Or is this just more of regulation by enforcement and the SEC is way out of line? And I don't um, want to get you in trouble. I know you're a developer, so you can just say I pass. No, no. Um, I think this is like, this is just classic enforcement, whether it's blockchain or whether it's traditional securities or whatever. I think this is just classic enforcement. Uh, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you use in, if you use investor funds for things that aren't meant for investor funds, this could be something as simple as, hey, look, 
I took investor funds from business A and I put it in the business B and I made money for them. Well, if, it, if they didn't give you the funds to invest in business B or give you the funds to do that thing, you've just committed fraud. And I think that's essentially what's being hap is, is what's happening here. Is they're just they're just enforcing some level of fraud that was happening simply because the funds that were supposed to be allocated towards a, a specific toward of ideal or specific toward a specific type of project weren't allocated to those things. You have to be super careful about that. Um, especially if you're a project, like a CEO, project manager, developer, um, it really just comes down to the trust of between you and the people that are engaging with your project and the people that are investing in your project. But this is just classic fraud, uh, regardless of the technology that they use or regardless of the industry that they're in. If you say you're going to use the funds for this and you don't use it for that, you've committed fraud. Um, now, whether he committed fraud or not, it's on the SEC to prove, but that's essentially where I see this case right here. And he doesn't do himself any favors, but I've seen all the videos of him bragging and all the money. He does not do himself any favors with any of that too. Flaunting the money that you've been accused of stealing just essentially digs you into a bigger, a bigger ditch. And I don't think this is new just for him. I think this is something that's in crypto. You gotta remember, if this was traditional securities, there's a lot of reporting standards around being able to see where this money is going, what it's being used for, who's managing it, why they're managing it, who they're managing it for, there's a lot of regulation around that uh, in the traditional equities markets. So when you look at crypto, I think you end up seeing a lot of like shysters that think they can get away with it. You clearly see that. There are plenty of people who almost seem like they do get away with it, but not everyone does. And when they start cracking the hammer down, they're going to crack it down hard, mostly to essentially uh, send a message or, uh, or, or make an example of them. So yeah, I don't think he's doing himself any favors. I think it, this might be one of those things where uh, maybe he might have, you know, been a little bit more low key and maybe not got in trouble if he wasn't sort of trading around all these little Gucci bags or whatever. But um, I think it's just a classic fraud case, and they're just pursuing um fraud as as no different than any other fraud case. The real question is, uh, what evidence do they have to convict them? And Johnny Crypto, you're going to like this. A couple of our listeners commented, this is Johnny Crypto after the Merlin launch. And someone else said, this is Johnny Crypto's alter ego. So I just wanted to throw that in there before I give you the floor. I'll tell you what, man. Arrogance is not a crime, but boy, he was not smart. You know, if you watch all the mob movies, they always tell you, if you're going to do something illegal, keep it on the down low. <laughs> you shouldn't be out there. You know, you know he's got to well, go no, no new cars, no new houses. Like, yeah, yeah, remember, right? <laughs> always use cash. Remember when the good fellows, he walked in with the fur coat. He goes, give me that fur coat. Rips it off the lane, pulls it out the window. What the hell are you guys doing? Richard Hart, you know, I don't know the guy at all, but I advise him to go watch Goodfellas. And you'll learn exactly what not to do when you Fellas, go to casino, The Godfather. <laughs> go watch a mob movie. <laughs> and so, and so I got to watch one mob movie. You know, you got to keep it on the download. What the hell was he thinking? Johnny Crypto, oh, this man. is Good Morning Crypto, but we do life lessons as well on this channel. Yes, when our do, listeners man. make it big, don't go crazy with the Gucci bags if you want the SEC <laughs> to stay away. But this is a great article that Johnny actually sent me last night. And Quincy, this is something that many of our listeners have been waiting a long time for. Businesses can now send USDC to any U.S. bank account in America with more stablecoins soon to come. And this integration, I really believe, is historic. So Utopia Labs launched a product giving businesses the ability to send USDC to any United States bank account. Entities are also able to send stablecoins to USDC accounts, such as ones offered by payment company Wise. Now, what's really cool about this article is at the bottom, they talk about integrating other stablecoins in the future. Utopia currently uses the Ethereum blockchain and is set to make the offerings available on most other blockchains soon. Utopia also seeks to add support for stablecoins going forward, including Tether in the coming weeks. Their CEO said, I believe in a multi-stablecoin future. And we went to USDC first because that was the bridge that provided in terms of infrastructure. Crypto has, has to communicate with fiat in order for us to accelerate that future. And we think 
it doesn't have to be a separate product. It should be ingrained and embedded within the user's workflow. He's basically elaborating on what you said, Quincy. This is all going to take place behind the scenes, but the, the articles like these, this is what our specific group of listeners should be, should be aware of. So I just wanted to start off broadly with the integration of United States stablecoins. Is this just one step away from integrating decentralized assets into banking? Um, actually, so let me preface this. I only got like five minutes, so I'll try to answer this quite briefly. Okay. Um, but I think this is going to be sort of a stepping stone in terms of being able to integrate how people traditionally deal with assets to, uh, as well as how people are able to deal with digital assets. Now, I think from the banking perspective, I think it makes it a little bit more easier to interact with these digital assets. But I think from like an economics perspective, I think it makes it a lot easier for people to source liquidity from their bank accounts onto these digital networks. So traditionally, if you want to interact with a smart contract, you have to go to like Coinbase or something, buy the asset and essentially send it to your wallet and interact with that smart contract. I think now you'll start seeing means of being able to interact with smart contracts directly through your bank account, interact with different applications directly through your bank account. And instead of you essentially having to go custody those assets, you may see a series of different providers on the back end provide a means for you to source that liquidity from your bank account to interact with these different technology stacks. And in doing so, you'll be able to interact with different tools on these chains that you would otherwise need to set up a wallet, buy some crypto, do the whole shebang that you can now essentially use from your bank account. And I think this is great because this allows for people who aren't very technically savvy to be able to integrate themselves into the blockchain ecosystem without actually having to go through the process and the barriers to do so. Because setting up a wallet, uh, writing down your 24 word seed phrase, doing all the stuff it means to be able to interact with blockchain networks is incredibly difficult. And the average person is not going to go do through that. And as someone, I say this almost as a joke, but like there are certain applications where if their signup process is too long, people won't go through it. And so it's where, where crypto ends up being, it ends up being incredibly nuanced, incredibly difficult, incredibly unforgiving. If you forgot your keys, if you forgot your if you forgot your keys, if you forgot your, your crypto, whatever it may be, you may have just essentially lost not just your crypto, but assets, documents, whatever it may be. I think this allows people to essentially tether all of those different all those different assets and all those things that they're custodied to their bank account to allow them an easier and more fluid means of interacting with these technologies and interacting with these new applications. Quincy, since we're on the topic of stablecoins, I know you're short on time, but check out this latest article right here. Tether now holds more U.S. treasuries than Australia, the UAE, and Spain. Their operating profits were also $1 billion for the quarter. And for context, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, were in a similar ballpark at $1.6 billion. So what does this tell me? Tether is slowly controlling the U.S. Treasury market. And Johnny broke it down before the show, but I want to ask you, how does this, I guess, affect your perspective on the crypto market? Because when I look at the market today, every time Bitcoin's moving, it's assets like Tether that surprisingly get minted a billion new tokens. So is this a problem we're going to address at some point, or are we just going to integrate Tether and put all these narratives to the side, I guess, even though it seems nefarious to say the least? So yeah, this actually is, I'm not a huge fan of Tether for a few reasons. And I think it comes to uh, the trust in stable coins. The stable coin is only valued based on your trust and ability to redeem fiat from it. Um, and you saw a, a fracture in this trust with USDC with the whole Silicon Valley bank, the little detethering, that, that was, that in itself, that was supposed to be the safest option. And that was supposed to be trustworthy, the banks, all these different organizations were putting all their efforts into, and we saw what happened with that. And that, I mean, don't get me wrong, that was sort of resolved with a little bit of a bailout, a little bit of uh, some regulations around that, and they sort of were able to stabilize themselves. But 
I think Tether's in a different ballpark. I don't think Tether has those same levels of protections. And I think the value of Tether and essentially the status of the market is going to be entirely predicated off how much trust people have in terms of being able to redeem their Tether for dollars. And right now, people don't because they interact with crypto as much. But what ends up happening is the more Tether that's out there, the more demand for dollars that there's going to be. And it's really going to come down to their ability to, it's really going to come down to their ability to be able to allow for the liquidity in terms of people being able to redeem dollars to keep that trust. If I all of a sudden had 10 billion Tether and I said, hey, look, Tether, can I redeem this for dollars? And they said, ooh, wait a minute. And they waited like a week and they gave me like 100 mil and they said, oh, wait a little bit more. And they wait another week and they gave me another 100 mil and I said, wait a little bit more. If my trust gets fractured, I might start selling the Tether at a loss due to knowing or due to believing that Tether doesn't have the means of being able to source the fiat liquidity for me. And that can essentially create a downward spiral because anyone who's holding Tether may potentially lose faith in the notion of being able to redeem those dollars and essentially get rid of it for anything they can. I think that's the serious problem with, I think that's the serious problem with any stable coin. It's all about the trust. It's literally no different than how banks operate. But if that trust is fractured, then essentially the asset's worthless. Um, and we saw this, we see this with stable coins all the time. Terra Luna was like this. USDC, the deep pegging was like this. Every single stable coin has had this freaking problem. And we just presume that like, oh yeah, let's just trust, trust Tether. And Tether's had a really checkered past with their founders. I think they're based in Hong Kong right now. They have a really checkered past with regulation. They have a really checkered past with uh, audits. They have a really checkered past with the law. So it's all about trust at the end of the day. People like to go, oh, it's Tether FUD, it's Tether FUD. Yeah, it's fun until it's not. It's all about it's all about trust. And if you truly trust Tether, then I don't see why you don't trust the banks because the banks are more trustworthy than Tether. And I'm not saying you need to trust Tether or trust the banks. I'm saying there's a serious lack, lack of trust, in my opinion, in terms of how a lot of stable coins operate. It's very difficult for them to operate. We see this with the most trustworthy ones, USDC. We've seen this with the most trustworthy ones and they have problems. So the real question is how much can you trust Tether and how much of an effect on the market would it, would it have if it lost trust? I think it could be a serious meltdown um, in the event of there being of being some sort of depegging, some sort of loss of trust, loss in faith event, whatever it may be. Um, but I think Tether's in a really interesting position. And I think the only reason that, it, that it's not uh, being challenged is because no one's actually redeeming these Tethers for dollars from Tether. I think as soon as someone wants to source a huge, like I said, let's say Tether printed up to 100 billion, right? Well, someone wants to redeem 20 million and they start realizing that I don't think Tether has that that may start panic. And I don't think that's good for anybody. It's not good for the market. It's not good for Tether. It's not good for any of these crypto projects. It can essentially cause a meltdown due to Tether being one of the most, one of the most uh, easy means of being able to have uh, stablecoin liquidity in any of these markets. Um, I'm personally like on edge about it. It doesn't make me feel very good. I don't know if I trust Tether too much, but a lot of people don't seem to be too worried about it. Uh, and I guess we'll see what time will tell. But um, it's all about trust at the end of the day. If you trust that and from the average person, maybe you're not redeeming your $20 in Tether from Tether for 20 bucks. But once someone that holds a bunch of Tether, it could be someone like Coinbase or an exchange. They could say, hey, look, we have all this Tether. We need to source liquidity into fiat currency. Do you have it? And the second they say no and faith is lost, I think you'll see a meltdown like you've seen with every other stable coin. Yeah, I think that's really the true challenge with any of these stable coins and why you're seeing stable coin regulation going through the U.S. Is right now there is a shit ton of trust. Like shit time. Literally, the whole crypto industry is being held up by USDT and USDC. And the reality is when we saw the audit reports, we couldn't even get the right information out of the USD, uh, out of Tether. So it is scary that, you know, four or five people somewhere on the other side of the world are literally holding the whole entire <laughs> Tether bag. And we don't know much about them. 
to me, that is not the way to set up a whole crypto industry. And that's why we need crypto regulation. We need the stable coin, you know, to be governed in backed not by four guys in China or wherever the hell they are in Asia somewhere, but rather by some kind of government apps that is going to be able to make sure that when people go to redeem it, that redemption can actually happen. Until we get there, it's always going to be a risky thing. We saw what happened when people put their trust in FTX or three euros or all these other Celsius and all these other things. What happened? The rug got ripped off from one of them. So trust doesn't uh, usually work in this space. And, and I think one thing about stable coins too, I think you're actually going to see in the future, once things sort of become a little bit more mature, I think you're actually going to see stable coins be sort of analogous to how corporate bonds operate. I think you'll start seeing private, private institutions instituting stable coins the same way that they institute bonds, the exact same way. They're just more liquid. They're just way more liquid. There may be private stable coin markets in terms of how people are able to uh, engage and redeem certain value from these coins. But I think they'll, they'll I think they will take over the corporate bond market, but they will abide by the same corporate bond rules. So you may have stable coins that have different bond ratings and different ratings of how trustworthy they are, different um, APYs, different yields in terms of what it means to be able to, uh, you know, redeem, redeem a profit from these uh, stable coins. I think they may take the place of bonds in a more liquid market, but the level of rules around them will be similar to how bonds operate right now. I don't think it's going to be sort of wild west, hippy dippy. Anyone just issues anything backed by anything that you see right now. I don't think algorithmic stable coins will ever be a thing. I think people have a terrible taste in their mouth, not to mention like you're sort of trusting an algorithm as opposed to trusting a process. And not that the process automatically makes it trustworthy, but being able to have certain rules, laws, regulations and enforcement behind the process builds the trust. Not just the notion and the promise that this algorithm, some genius algorithm that's not going to melt down. Thank you, Quincy. And you know what it really reminds me of? Johnny brought up FTX. A $16 billion collapse took Bitcoin from where it was all the way to 16 k If Tether popped, that is an $80 billion bubble holding up this market. And God only knows how low it could take the rest of these projects. But we got 581 live listeners here. If you're enjoying this content, we go live every single weekday, five days a week, 11 a.m., be sure to subscribe down below and turn on the notification bell. That way you can continue to get these live streams. And I want to say thank you to Quincy for making time for us. Quincy, can you just remind our listeners where they can find more of your content? Maybe your Twitter handle as well. Yeah, so you can find me on YouTube. Actually, just change my YouTube name to uh, Your Bro Quincy. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Your Bro Quincy or Coin Club Quincy. Um, my, my whole bread and butter is being able to talk about these technologies, uh, being able to share perspective. I'm actually sort of switching up my, uh, my approach trying to make more like travel vlog content. Like I travel a lot and I meet a lot of people and I want to sort of share that perspective a little bit more. So I might be moving a little bit more towards travel vlogs and then talking about my experience, talking about the different people that I interact with. And on Twitter, I just, you know, spout off my ideas on uh, how different technologies operate and what you can do with them. And you can go there and just watch my tweets or whatever if you want to see what I like to talk about. But um, but yeah, no, I have a YouTube channel. You can find me at Your Bro Quincy. I talk about a lot of different things. I plan on dropping a lot of new videos, like the travel vlog style, travel vlog style. And um, it was really cool being here. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Quincy. We always appreciate when you make time for us. And also, guys, you heard it right there. Your Bro Quincy on YouTube, and I believe it was Coins Club Quincy on Twitter. Just correct me mm -hmm. there. 
Or Perfect. or your bro Quincy too. I like you know you got the double name thing. But yeah, yeah. Point Club Quincy or your bro Quincy. Uh, you can find me. And uh, yeah, I talked about a lot of different topics. I plan on talking about a lot more topics. I actually want to interview people. Might even start a podcast soon, uh, depending on how things are looking in the next few weeks. But uh, hell, maybe if I have a podcast, I might bring you guys on. <laughs> I was just but, gonna uh, say, Quincy, if you ever need a co-host, I'm your man right here. And guys, <laughs> we got 566 people here. First of all, thank you to Quincy. We always enjoy when you make time for us. Please show us some love, smash that like button, and we'll see you guys in 23 hours. Like we always say, Warriors, rise. Get shit together, baby. Thanks for joining us.